Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, we review the medical literature, and we review case studies. Today's show topic is, how does intravenous vitamin C work in sepsis? Our guest today is Dr. Ramesh Natarajan. He's from the Division of Pulmonary Disease and Critical Care Medicine, Department of Internal Medicine, School of Medicine at the Virginia Commonwealth University, and he's co-authored two interesting papers. Uh, One is Ascorbate-Dependent Vasopressor Synthesis, a Rationale for Vitamin C Administration in Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock in Critical Care in 2015, and the second one was Phase 1 Safety Trial of Intravenous Ascorbate in Patients with Severe Sepsis in the Journal of Translational Medicine, 2014. So, welcome, Dr. Natarajan. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Dr. Hamilton. So, I really appreciate your work, and I'll tell you why. As a, you know, I've used vitamin C intravenously in the practice we've worked at for over 30 years. And, you know, most of it's just clinical anecdote, to be truthful. And so when your Dr. Fowler and colleagues came out with your study uh, using it in a very acute illness in a hospital, sepsis, uh, intravenous vitamin C, uh, that to me helps put some legitimacy on it, and especially how long you all have been studying uh, sepsis in, in pulmonary medicine. So thank you so much for your work. Can you tell me your educational background just briefly and how you got to where you're at? So I actually came to the United States from India in 1992. I got my uh, Ph.D. degree right here at Virginia Commonwealth University in biochemistry. And then after a couple of uh, postdoctoral positions, I joined Dr. Fowler. He was then chair of pulmonary uh, in the School of Medicine here at BCU. And we went from there, you know, we went to, uh, we started with cardiac ischemia reperfusion injury before we eventually came back to a lung disease, which was sepsis-induced acute lung injury. And that's what got us started on there. Tell me about sepsis. What is the definition of sepsis and what happens to the body and why does it so frequently occur in hospitalized patients? If you go by the CDC's definition, which is actually a very accurate definition, sepsis would be the uh, body's overwhelming and life-threatening response to infection. And what happens because of that is the the body's own defenses cause tissue damage, they cause multiple organ dysfunction, and uh, eventually death. So it's almost like an autoimmune illness in a way, or an immediate onset autoimmune illness where your immune system attacks self? Um, exactly. It's like a very, it's a very acute uh, response. Um, you know, typical autoimmune uh, diseases last for years and years and years, but this happens in a very short time. So why, what makes people susceptible to sepsis? There are many reasons uh, why people could be susceptible to sepsis. Of course, age is a factor. And it has been shown that in very young people or in very old people, those who get things like flu and pneumonia, people who don't get vaccinated, often tend to get sepsis. But sepsis, of course, can come from anything. It can, it can be something as little as a cut that you, can, uh, that you have that gets infected with bacteria and gets into the bloodstream, and that can get you sepsis. But our studies have shown that one of the things that can predispose you to getting sepsis would be a low plasma vitamin C level. So, for example, if I had two people, one with a normal plasma vitamin C level and the other with low plasma vitamin C level, and they both get a similar cut, the chance of a person with low vitamin C level getting sepsis is higher than um, than somebody who has a normal vitamin C level. Now, do you? there's a higher instance of sepsis, obviously, 
in hospitals because you don't everybody that gets a cut doesn't run and get sepsis. You know? No. So why does it right. happen more in hospitals, or are they just sicker patients in general? Well, well, that's a great question there. So we would all think that everybody gets vitamin C in our diet, right? We are we are an advanced civilization, and getting vitamin C is not a problem. But a couple of recent studies have shown that almost 7% of the U.S. population has a vitamin C level which is designated as scurvy, which is less than 11.4 micromolar in circulation. But going back to the hospitalization question, if you look at the number of patients, if you look at vitamin C levels in inpatient population versus outpatient population, the difference is quite stunning. And actually, I can give you the exact reference. There's a paper by Runier et al., and they looked at the vitamin C deficiency in a university teaching hospital, and they showed that if you are a hospitalized patient, 41% of hospitalized patients have deficient vitamin C levels, and another 19% have levels that are close to being scurvy. So inpatient versus outpatient makes a big difference. In, uh, if you're an inpatient, your levels are typically very low because you've had some kind of infection, some kind of stress over a period of time. If you're outpatient, you're typically more healthier, but still it is prevalent even in the outpatient population. So that begs the question, why do not all your traditional colleagues measure vitamin C levels because it's so cheap and simple and give it in the hospital? I wish I could say it was uh, that's cheap and simple. Uh, the reason vitamin C is not measured is because, you know, when you go, go to your primary care physician, they'll take a sample of your blood. That blood usually sits around for a little while before it goes to a laboratory and eventually gets measured. Now, vitamin C is very sensitive. It is sensitive to temperature. It is sensitive to light. And as it sits in that blood, it's going to get degraded. And so one of the key things to do in order to measure vitamin C is to immediately or put the plasma or the whole blood as it is in ice, which means you want to cool it down to 4 degrees. And then when you get the plasma, you need to get all the proteins out of that plasma because the proteins contain things like free iron, and the iron can easily oxidize the vitamin C levels. And so what you measure may not be a real reflection of what's happening in your plasma. That is, on a practical standpoint, very hard to do. And so nobody, almost nobody measures vitamin C levels under normal conditions. And then when you bring it to the lab, the gold standard for measuring vitamin C is HPLC. We, of course, use both HPLC in our lab and a very, very cheap technique where we use a fluorometer to measure vitamin C levels, and that literally costs pennies. And that assay actually is very, very comparable to an HPLC assay, but it has not been commercialized. So there are one or two companies that do have a commercial product to measure vitamin C levels, but it is not common, and I wish it were common, but that's not the case. So th that's the fluorescent endpoint assay? That's the, the one that you... Yes. The, right. The other assay is the fluorescent endpoint assay, uh, but, but the gold standard is the HPLC assay. Right. But is that... I, I got a little confused. Is that the simple one that can be done? Yes. The fluorescent endpoint assay is a very simple assay, but uh, which costs literally pennies. But it doesn't matter which assay you do, that first step where you take the plasma from the patient's blood and you take away all the proteins and then freeze that deprotonized plasma, that is the key step 
to preserve the vitamin C in the patient sample. Okay, so even if the regular health professionals or critical care specialists knew about measuring vitamin C, the likelihood of it being accurate is probably low, right? Correct, correct, unless it is processed in this manner. Okay, Um, how... How does vitamin C work? In, I know there's multiple pathways. Can you give a few of how it helps with this septic problem, this mass autoimmune kind of immune reaction to your, all your body parts? How does it help prevent that? So what we have is evidence that has come from preclinical studies that means animal models of sepsis. They are not an accurate reflection of human models of sepsis, but they do give us clues. So one of the things vitamin C does is it is required for normal endothelial function. And what that means is that the endothelium is the one, is a cell. It's, it's a single layer of cells that lines your entire vasculature in your whole body, whether it is uh, your uh, arteries, your veins, your capillaries. They all have a single layer of endothelial cells. Uh, and the endothelial function or normal endothelial function requires vitamin C. So vitamin C, uh, one of the things that happens in sepsis is you lose fluid from your blood into the tissues because the endothelial openings get very permeable. That means the gap that is between endothelial cells becomes bigger than normal, and so fluid can easily percolate out. And if you have normal vitamin C levels, then the this gap is a lot smaller, and so your body tends to hold on to its fluid. And so you don't lose all that fluid. And a consequence of losing fluid is your blood pressure goes down. Um, And so your heart has to work harder and your body has to make these uh, vasoconstrictors. And, of course, vasoconstrictor function is uh, synthesis also requires vitamin C. So there are many things in which, many ways in which vitamin C affects sepsis. So a, a couple of things were the endothelial function, the hypotension or the loss of uh, your normal blood pressure. Uh, It affects the inflammation. Uh, By inflammation, I mean it is the body's response to an infection. And it's the overwhelming or the exuberant response which makes things go bad in sepsis. And what vitamin C C seems to do, and this is both in, in animal models and in human sepsis, is to temper that inflammation down. We're talking to Dr. Ramesh Natarajan from uh, the Division of Pulmonary Medicine and Critical Care Medicine at the School of Medicine, Virginia Commonwealth University, and we're talking about sepsis and vitamin E and some of the ways that vitamin C may help. I have, this is just a very simplistic mind of mine, but what would happen if everybody that got admitted to the hospital or the ICU was given 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C like twice a day? Would that help anything? (laughs) Um, Well, actually... uh that would be one of the goals uh, that I eventually want to achieve. Uh, you know, if we can measure vitamin C levels in in patients, in patients in critical care, most studies have shown those levels are very low. Um, so there are two ways to replenish your vitamin C. One is the way you suggested, which means you can just take a pill of vitamin C, and the other is uh, the intravenous route. Uh, so what is the difference between the two? It's simple. When you go take the oral route, there is only a certain amount of it which can be absorbed by the body. So if you're very deficient, the body will try to get as much as it can, but a lot of it gets excreted. 
if you do the intravenous route, then you overcome all those excretory mechanisms and you directly increase your plasma vitamin C levels. Well, what? So uh, I, I can give you a simple analogy. If you're, if you're very uh, fatigued in the day, okay, you haven't had a chance to drink water, you can simply take a glass of water, right, and you get, your water, you get hydrated back again. Vitamin C is just like that. If you haven't had vitamin C for, a lips for some time, you take a food-containing vitamin C or you can take a vitamin C pill, you're doing fine. But if you're prolonged, if you have a prolonged duration where you haven't had water, you've been dehydrated for two to three days, then just getting a glass of water is not going to cut it. You will have to get intravenous fluids, which in this case would be something like saline to get your fluid level back up in your body. And again, vitamin C is just like that. If you have been low on vitamin C for a long period of time, the way to get it back would be the intravenous route. So that brings us to your study that you did. Uh, well, there's two of them, but the first study in 2014, the pilot trial, you used two different dosings of intravenous vitamin C in the septic patients, the 50 and 200 milligram per kilogram per day, which would be in a 70 kilogram person, uh, 3.5 and what was it, 13? 14 14, grams. 14 grams. So can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that study and what it, what it showed us? Um, so the dose that we came about uh, of using 50 and 200 milligrams per kilogram came from preclinical models of sepsis, uh, which we had done in, uh, um, in mice. Um, and so when uh, this study was conducted at Virginia Commonwealth University, Dr. Fowler at that time was the chair of the division, and he was the PI of that trial. And the study showed several important things. It showed that... Uh, the inflammation, which is very exuberant in sepsis, is significantly tempered down or is curtailed by giving intravenous vitamin C. So we looked at biomarkers of inflammation, and they were uh, reduced in the presence of intravenous vitamin C. A second thing that it did was it looked at multiple organ dysfunction. So what happens in sepsis is that your lungs start to fail, your kidneys start to fail, your liver starts to fail, your brain starts to fail. So you have multiple organ dysfunction, and that is assessed by a simple score called the multiple organ dysfunction score or a sequential organ failure assessment score called SOFA score. And what we found was that patients who got vitamin C had significant improvement in their organ dysfunction, which means their organs stopped failing and started performing better when they got the vitamin C. The last part was endothelium, like uh, I mentioned initially. Endothelial function critically requires vitamin C. And we were able to show that patients who did not get any vitamin C had endothelial damage, which could be reversed in the presence of vitamin C. So is it safe to say or not exaggerating that this is a life-saving treatment? In our hands, to this point, it has been a life-saving treatment. In addition to the to that phase one trial where we were able to decrease the mortality by in, in the untreated group or in a patient getting a standard of care treatment, the mortality was 62%. In our treated uh, patients, we, uh, the mortality was down to 50% and 38%. So there was uh, so, uh, definitely some effect on mortality, but from a statistical point of view, it wasn't significantly different. Vitamin C is also being used not only at our institution but other institutions on an off-label basis, which means that these patients are coming in and they're getting the best treatment that they can get, 
and the physician is not seeing any improvement, and so vitamin C is being prescribed for a single off-label use, and what we found is that vitamin C seems to definitely uh, benefit all these patients in that none of these patients, the mortality has been zero in all of these patients, which means all of them have survived, all of them have returned back to healthy lives, not just at our institution, but at several other institutions where uh, we've had physicians come back and tell us that based on your, uh, based on our uh, paper that we published, they started that treatment and they saw very similar results in terms of mortality and coming back to normal function. So two quick questions on that. Was the 50 milligram per kilogram as effective in reducing SOFA scores and inflammatory markers as the 200 milligram per kilogram dose? Actually, the 200 was a little better when you looked at the SOFA score. uh, 200 milligrams per kilogram brought a more rapid decline in the organ dysfunction. So that means the organ function improved better and faster with a higher dose. It didn't mean that the lower dose didn't work. It probably meant that uh, if we had gone longer with the lower dose, it would have eventually caught up with what the higher dose was doing. And were the anecdotal reports in the other hospitals or off-label ones, were those all sepsis or were those other kinds of critical illness? Most of them were sepsis, and sepsis, of course, can come from many different sources. And it it was remarkable that vitamin C was able to treat those patients, even though the cause of sepsis was different in most of those cases. And were there any side effects to the intravenous vitamin C that you used at the 50 to 200 milligram per kilogram dose per day? In, in the ICU patients that were done in that study, we looked at side effects like hypotension, tachycardia, nausea, vomiting, and we found absolutely none of those side effects. So it was completely safe in our hands. Uh, in Even in these uh, other uh, institutions where they have been used in an off-label uh, manner, we, uh, none of them have reported any side effects. And the way this was given, you would take, let's say, the 14-gram dose, just take that, it would be divided into 3.5-gram doses is four times a day, given in a little 50-ml um, IV bag of dextrose and water? That's correct. You can do three do- four doses a day, which we did in that phase one trial, or you could bring it down to three doses a day. And that is because once you get the vitamin C into the circulation, it gradually starts tapering off. And our goal would be to maintain a certain level of vitamin C. Uh, and that can be done by giving it every six hours or at worst every eight hours. And one of the things from, from our clinical point of view, people, practitioners just using it out in, in the field and in general practice is that obviously most people don't cover up the vitamin C and keep it in a refrigerator and with dark IV tubing like you all did. How important do you think that is to maintaining the, in, the integrity of the vitamin C? I think that is absolutely critical. Uh, since vitamin C is so sensitive both to light and temperature, it is essential that the, the tubing keep, be kept dark, the saline bag be kept dark, and everything be kept in the cold till you're ready for the infusion. And in that 30 minutes or so that it takes to get infused with the vitamin C in the saline bag, we have found that there is hardly any degradation if that saline bag is kept covered and the IV tubing is also kept covered. So I'm very curious about that. So for example, let's say we gave a 60 gram infusion over an hour and a half and we didn't put it in any of the tubing. Would you say that, I mean, you don't have a percentage, but let's say you're really only getting 10 grams of of non-oxidized vitamin C. Would that be something like that? Is that the thought process? 
Absolutely. Uh, you would not get the 60 grams, and I'm not sure it will be 10 grams. You'd probably get uh, a good, a decent amount. But uh, on the flip side, what happens to ascorbic acid when it gets oxidized or vitamin C when it gets oxidized is it becomes another compound called dehydroascorbic acid. Correct. And dehydroascorbic acid behaves differently from ascorbic acid or vitamin C. So the body looks at it differently. Actually, our body's ability to take up that oxidized version is even better than vitamin C alone. But once it gets into the cell, it has to be converted back to vitamin C because it is the vitamin C which is the effective agent, not the dehydroascorbic acid. Well, I think that's going to be some discussion at the conference where I hope to meet you at, uh, in, at the University of Kansas University Medical Center, because that, that's a very practical thing. I mean, that's something that's not studied. So, all right, well, this is fabulous. Uh, so I can see this, I mean, this, has got a, this could potentially save millions of dollars. If you, I mean, with a relatively cheap compound, and if you could assess it quickly, let's say you gave a couple grams and same that came in, then you could measure them, and then if they really got acute, you give them the IV vitamin C. I mean, I don't know. It seems like a no-brainer to me. Well, I could just tell you, you know, uh, at least in the United States, the annual hospital cost, and this was as of 2011 for treatment of sepsis, was over $20 billion. Yeah. And so... Even in a, a single day cost is something in the order of eighteen to twenty thousand dollars. Vitamin C, on the other hand, costs twenty-two dollars a vial, which means I can give you your four doses of vitamin C for essentially for the cost of drug of twenty-five or ma- at max fifty dollars. That means it's it, it is very very cheap, very very economical. And I'm hoping that someday it'll bring down the cost of hospital stay, cost of uh, treatment for sepsis patients, and eventually does something to benefit their lives. I think that's exciting. That's what really excites me. It excites me that you're doing it such an academic institution in, a, in a, such a correct way. Why do you think, are, are your colleagues slow, traditional colleague who's not open, let's say, or has, doesn't know about vitamin C, are they slow to kind of look at your work? I would not say slow, and I think that's just the way science progresses because you need to be skeptical about everything that is out there until it can be tested and made sure that everything is good. Um, the, the research done with vitamin C has been modeled for many years. You know, uh, Dr. Linus Pauling got a Nobel Prize in two different fields, and he started all the work with vitamin C, but at that point in time, it was both oral and vit- intravenous vitamin C, and people didn't know the difference. So in some, for some people, it worked, and for other people, it didn't work, and that just confused everything. What we are talking about here is just intravenous vitamin C. That is the only way we think that can bring vitamin C levels uh, in the plasma to what is considered a pharmacological level. And hopefully, you know, when we started this uh, research, everybody was skeptical. Uh, We were not able to get papers published. We were not able to uh, get things accepted. But gradually, you can feel the trend is turning around. We have published uh, several times now in the literature. People are seeing that. And like I said, a lot of the off-label use has come from publications that we've had where physicians are saying, okay, there is nothing else I can do for this patient. I might as well try this. And then lo and behold, it is working. So hopefully more physicians try it out, see if it works. If it works, they put it out in the literature so that other physicians can see it and then slowly becomes standard of care uh, and more accepted over time. Well, I just absolutely 
value your your vision, and I hope to be alive to see it. Um, so I know you got to get back to work. You got a meeting. Any closing thoughts before we before you leave? Just you know, media outlets like uh, what you have are absolutely one hundred percent important, and I, I and I say that because sepsis is something that doesn't get media coverage. But if you think of, and I just give you a small example, Muhammad Ali who just passed away a few days ago, Patty Duke, who passed a couple of months ago, Pope John Paul II. All of these people have one thing in common. Well, they all died from sepsis. Well, I should put another name in there, Christopher Reeve. So you have the greatest boxer in the world, and you have Superman, and sepsis was able to beat both of them. So if we can find something that that works for sepsis, I think, you know, it is time uh, we do something about it. And outlets like you have are absolutely fantastic for this process. I mean, I can't appreciate uh, enough what you do to uh, promote things like what we are doing over here. And hopefully people see it and it becomes standard of care. And that's the only thing I can hope for. Well. Dr. Natalajan, thank you so much. This will go up on iTunes. This will be on my website, stayinghealthytoday.com, and I will share it. And uh, you keep up the fabulous work, and I hope to see you in, in uh, Kansas in September. And uh, have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dr. Hamilton. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. And spread this message. <laughs> if you have any health professional friends, this would be a good podcast to listen to. Um, go to iTunes or stayinghealthytoday.com. You have a fabulous day, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>